Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Welcome, guys. On today's podcast, we have Emily Brooke, the founder and CEO of Barrel. I was going to say Barrel Hardware or Barrel Lights or Barrel Bike Share, but I'm going to let her walk us through why she's really focusing on transforming cities and transport. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. Good to see you. So we have a common background. I, I didn't share this when we were talking before we started the podcast, but we both went to Babson. Ah, okay. <laughs> so it's it's a funny, um, I was I was going through your LinkedIn, I was like, oh, wow, we, we were both in, in that area of the world. Um, did sick. you enjoy it? I did. It was amazing. It was my, um, my university actually sent me out there on a program, a scholarship, which is basically kind of a mini version of their master's program. The first thing was a shock. It's a, a dry town for university, which was interesting to me. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I didn't realize did, if you couldn't drink. Did you university. comply with that? Um, not completely, no. <laughs> but I'm not sure everyone did. Yeah. But it was, it was a, honestly the first time I really contemplated the word entrepreneurship. So it was, it opened my eyes to what it meant to start a business. And I realized I was in a really fortunate position to start one. So why wasn't I? And I kind of came home and did that. Mm. And I saw that you, you did a lot of product development and product um, and device design studies. Mm-hmm. And I, I can kind of, you retroactively, you look at it and you think, oh, that makes sense in light of what Barrel is today. But maybe you can share a couple of insights as to education mm. for entrepreneurship. Because, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, vilification of degrees, you know, like MBAs or yeah. you, lo- you learn through entrepreneurship. You don't need to learn through school, you know, but you, you seem to have a lot of relevant studies for what you've done. Maybe you can share kind of your thoughts around what you've studied versus what you would have not. Yeah. I mean, it, it was a wiggly journey. <laughs> I um, was a girl that could do science and maths and went to a good school and they strongly encouraged me to do the academics. I mean, what I loved doing was design, art and design, but I was encouraged not to do those and do physics, maths, chemistry, and further mathematics A-levels, which is pretty dry. Um, and then when it came to university, I wanted to do something creative. I wanted to do product design or architecture, but had no had no portfolio, had no art. I was left, I had no idea, left at the last minute and my physics teacher said, why don't you try physics? Why don't you try Oxbridge? And I applied to six universities, five to read astrophysics because that was slightly less dry than straight physics and Oxford just do straight physics. And did my interviews and exam and got my letter of acceptance and thought, shit, <laughs> now I've got to go. So I went, I went to Oxford and read physics and lasted a year and it just wasn't for me. It was very high level mathematics. It wasn't anything tangible. It wasn't physical things. That's why I loved physics at school. It was things you could touch, see, hear, feel, um, get your head around. And it wasn't that. So I left and I did an art course in the countryside and it was no kind of great grand plan of where I wanted to go end up, but it just, I missed the art, I missed the creativity and then went to Brighton and did product design. And the course at Brighton was, was actually quite professional in the sense that it, you had to have a year in, in experience in, in working. And it was in that year I spent a semester in the design school in, in Milan, but they didn't really, and to their credit, they massively changed it now. But they didn't talk about starting a business. You're designing a product. Your last year is designing a product from start to finish. And that's why I designed our first product. But it was never really discussed that you go and take it into the real world and market it and start a business. It was sort of when you go and work for Seymour Powell or when you go and work for IDEO or one of the big design companies. It wasn't really like talked about. And they really have changed it now. And I've gone back and done a couple of talks and stuff. And they do focus on entrepreneurship. But at Oxford too, it wasn't really a thing that was kind of pushed mm. um, to go and do it yourself. 
But if, if we put aside sort of the schooling of entrepreneurship, would you say that if somebody wanted to, if somebody had an idea for a hardware company, yeah. is official schooling in that necessary or is it, is there enough supplementation of design firms and, and people? Does it have to be at the founder level or can it be in effect outsourced? Would you recommend it? It definitely can be outsourced. I think it's definitely useful to have a base level of understanding. As the company's grown quite quickly, I wasn't designing the products. I worked with the designer, <clears throat> but I spoke his language. I understood, I got, I loved the product. I really love the product. Mm. And that was kind of the compassion drove through the first kind of iterations of the product of me working with him really closely. And then we've hired internal design team. That team's grown. I think, so I think it definitely helped. I wouldn't say it was a necessity. Okay. And, and I think, Following that theme of your background, there was another stint you did, which was at Silicon Milk Roundabout. And in that spirit of what you need to know to be successful as an entrepreneur, and for those of you that don't know, Silicon Milk Roundabout uh, is effectively a job fair for startups. And so hiring such a critical part of, of a company's journey, how much now from what you look back on those days did you feel that founders should have invested more in educating themselves on how to hire appropriately? Like from the companies you saw go on Silicon Roundabout that succeeded and failed. Yeah. What, what retrospectively do you look back on with your experience today and think, Oh wow. Like people should invest more time in thinking this through better. Yeah. I learned a lot. I mean, I didn't really know what a startup was. I came to London specifically to learn about them. And that was back when Silicon Roundabout was really early. I mean, it's kind of first, first iteration. And as myself and another intern working with Pete to basically organize the whole thing. Mm. And for me, first and foremost, I learned like what a role like a product manager was. To me, a product manager was something to do with the physical product. <laughs> um, and quite, I learned the difficulty and complexity with hiring engineers and hiring technical talent. I'd never come across that. And it was obviously so competitive. Um, it was really eye opening to see this, 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 but also that there was a need for that. There was a real need for companies that needed a young technical talent. Um, and technical talent that wanted to not just be in a big corporate. And so matching that two together. And we haven't actually hired software or technical talent for a while until just recently. We've been building our own app and the whole bike share service. Um, and so I had it in the back of my mind since those days that it was going to be hard. <laughs> mm. And yeah, it is. And organizationally, so if you factor in what you just said, which is thinking and planning the hiring of technical talent is hard. What other elements of hiring did you see was done well or poorly at Silicon Milk Roundabout by um, some other companies? It was it was more kind of like who showed up on the day. It was so important that who was in that room like, and, and who what foot they put forward and, and the kind of the, the the communication to the people who were coming to see the, meet these companies. Yeah, if they had a junior person that wasn't really that fired up to be there, or excited to be there, it made a huge difference to somebody that was actually really like glowing about the business and passionate about it. And that fed into whoever was coming to speak to them. And it was back then, it was, it was very, very siloed roles. It wasn't kind of a broad, broad spectrum of roles. Mm -hmm. But it was, yeah, it was fascinating. That's probably a good transition into the history of Barrel. I know it originally started as Blaze. Yep. But one of the interesting things about any company, especially as a founder scales up themselves, is the transition from dealing with product directly to becoming a manager of people mm -hmm. and then focusing entirely on hiring people. So I, it stood out that you were saying that the companies that did better on Silicon Milk Roundabout were those that had people who were closer to the founder or the founders themselves yeah. versus somebody delegating it to somebody down the totem pole who they might not have as proximity to the company and their ethos and the culture. Totally. 
if you if you look again retrospectively on what you've learned now in Barrel across them, how many employees are you now? We're edging towards forty. Uh, 50, sorry, we're 40 something. How, how much do you think about how you've established a culture within Barrel so that that person who's potentially representing you at a job fair, mm-hmm. may, you might not be using job fairs, but mm-hmm. pretend there were, like, how are you instituting the Barrel culture today so that everybody in those 40 staff feel like they're part of a team, that they know what they're doing, and that they can represent that to potential talent in such a competitive landscape? So having a purpose, I mean, that's an obvious thing to say, but being a genuinely a purpose-driven business makes the world of difference. And our purpose has stayed exactly the same since day one, and that is to build a better world by getting more people in cities on bikes. And it started off with the first product, which lowers the barriers to cycling, which is the laser light, which tackles cycle safety. And one of the biggest concerns of cycle safety, being caught in the blind spot. And today we're actually doing our own bikes and getting more people on bikes. But everybody in the business really cares about improving cities that we live in by getting more people in them on bikes and that just filters through to everybody and everything that we do and in more recent in more recent years we've incorporated as a, as a b corporation and that again kind of we instill everything that we do as a company through everything that we do as a company and it people really care and it's we will only hire people that want to join us on that mission hmm. yeah i do remember i remember the early days ablaze when it was very clear that that was the objective you know it was yes a hardware company but a hardware company whose purpose was for people to feel safer about their cycling experience and you were evangelizing that did you have at the time i think one of the things that sometimes founders look back at other founders and think how did they get to where they are at the time in early days did emily have this idea of bike share in the future or was it something that's come up recently? How much did you have the plan today figured out in day one? Oh yeah, zero the plan today. I remember like we'd often talk about having our own bike and that was like a kind of a dream, a joke, not really kind of taken too seriously. It's all happened a lot faster and in a different way than we we're totally expecting. But why did you think that you wanted to have your own bike? Because we wanted to get more people on them. And I think, you know, if we were designing the other components around the bike when I do the actual bike the challenge was it, in the first imagination it was going to be a consumer bike you know and then what makes the perfect consumer bike it's a very hard question different people have different needs in different cities yeah. um, what technology do you put on it it's very limiting to keep trying to mm. define one bike for everybody whereas in bike share obviously you reach so many more people it's so aligned to our purpose mm. um, it's just it's the right thing to be doing mm. It's interesting when you say that because the image of like the Van Moof company yeah. that has like these amazing bikes. Uh, bikes with lights built in and electronics, yeah. like, you know, that's one direction you could have gone on, yeah. you know, and clearly now you've moved towards other ones. But let's let's bring it back down to like sort of day one. Uh, day one, Blaze, now Barrel, was building a light, mm-hmm. right? And of all the components... 132. Why, what's that? 132, by the way. Really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, of all the components, why a light? Like you could have gone helmet, you could have gone uh, brakes, you could have gone tires. Like why the light? So the light came out of my final year project at university. And I'd I'd never been on a road bike as an adult, but that summer decided to cycle the length of the UK for charity. So bought a bicycle and learned to ride it. Is that when you had the master light? The master light? Yeah, the was it's a really nice steel frame. Oh yeah, no, I had you know, I had a, a that was a giant. It's a giant defy. Oh really? They got stolen and I managed to get it back. Oh, <laughs> Then it got stolen again. Oh, wow. But, um, yeah, so cycled a thousand miles with a girlfriend and fell in love with cycling. Absolutely fell in love with it. But 
the summer that the ride finished in September and that same week, my final year of design started. I had to design a product from start to finish. And this countryside in the summer had been lovely and relaxing and wonderful and enjoyable, but the cities were stressful and dangerous and exhausting and quite scary. Mm. So I went back to university and gave myself the theme, urban cycling. And I wanted to identify and tackle the biggest problem for city cyclists and create a product. I didn't really care what the product, what the problem was necessarily, mm. whether it was getting lost or wet or your bike nicked, but it had to be the biggest. And straight away in the research, it was safety. Safety is the number one barrier for people who do cycle and the number one worry for people who, who already cycle. Um, and I spent about eight months doing a lot of user-centered research, a lot of IDEO, as a real IDEO fangirl, that kind of human-centered design research, and analyzing statistics and data on accidents. And there's one stat which still amazes me today, that 79% of cyclists involved in an accident are going straight ahead and somebody else turns into them. So it's typically a vehicle just in front of you turning across your path or a vehicle pulling out of a side junction in front of you. And I suddenly realised that in both those situations, the threat's actually ahead of you. You can see them. They just can't see you. So I found myself biking around town, thinking about this exact problem and thinking, I wish, you know, I wish I had a virtual me travelling through traffic to give them the heads up that I'm coming. Oh, I can project myself there. That was the original, original idea. And the first iteration was actually didn't have a light. It was just a laser. Yeah, it was a cool laser. Freaked me out the first time I saw it. <laughs> yeah. It's this thing. It's coming. It was like a lightsaber out of nowhere with a little bicycle guy. Yeah, it's funny because in London now you don't see people do double takes so much because they're on the Santander cycles. Yeah. Remember the early days, everyone would be like, whoa, what is what is that? But that's all they need to do is just go, whoa, stop and not yeah. step out or not turn into your path. That's all that needs to happen. But yeah, it was it was the, the, the first iteration at university wasn't a light. It was just a laser. And it was my final year project. Cool. You, when you wrote home, you're probably like, Mom, I'm working with lasers. Yeah. It's probably the coolest thing ever, right? Um, I, I took that prototype home and she shone it down the garden on the, on the, on the trees. <laughs> she thought it was the craziest thing ever. It's so cool, huh? It's like you're actually playing with lasers. Um, so how long did it take you from the moment you took that general idea of, of a laser you know, product that would be strapped onto the bike to project the image of it forward to the point when you had a viable build? that could be mass manufactured? How, how long was that time scale? A lot longer than you think. A good couple of years. I spent um, like a proper full year just messing around, really, trying to think about, uh, probably too scared to start a business. You know, I'd never had a job, let alone started a business. Um, and I spent a long time kind of wondering, is this the right way to do it? Is that the right way to do it? How do I, who do I ask? How do I find out? Um, before I finally realized that actually, I think it was a friend of mine, so just get on with it, Em, to stop. So stop thinking about it and get on with it. And I did. So that was a year wasted, probably. Um, and then it was working with my designer uh, to create the first prototype. And we put it up on Kickstarter. So we started the business September 2012 in this very building. Um, and then two months later, launched a Kickstarter. And from that point, it was probably still another good year before we had a product that was ready for mass production. And we did Kickstarter probably too early. But it was a month Kickstarter came to the UK, which was quite fun. On, on Kickstarter, maybe this is a good time as any to give people tips because I think we all love some of the ideas that pop up out of nowhere on Kickstarter, but you know, there's always that anxiety that some of them are bogus or mm -hmm. are not going to go anywhere. And maybe you can give some insights to anybody who's building that kind of product, what you would do better next time. So Kickstarter is, is an amazing platform. We've done it three times. It's great for proof of concept to put that idea out there and get people to actually kind of back it and believe in it and prove it with putting, by putting their hands in their pockets, actually. It's the first time it, we actually became a business. 
Um, it's great for feedback to get those people to, with with the caveat that these these people are often early adopters. They aren't necessarily the guy that's going to walk into Evans and buy a light um, on the street. It's, it's somebody who's, who's kind of quite tech savvy and, and all that. Um, and the marketing is obviously a global platform. I think there's the last part has changed an awful lot in the last few years that Kickstarter has been around. And you can market a product a lot better in different ways. And there's a whole dark art to that of the whole online digital marketing, which falls much more into e-coms and e-coms management. And I think for really successful products, you see they do that part really, really well. You do see these kind of wonderful hero products that come from nowhere and, and, and kind of smash out the park. But often the ones that do really well today are the ones who've got a great kind of marketing behind them as well. But it is, I think it's if for hardware where you have the challenge of, every other startup plus the working capital for actual physical product to get that kind of proof out the door is is really, really valuable. And then you can go and speak to investors, speak to manufacturers once you've proven yourself. Because unlike software, it's it's you know, a huge upfront investment. So software, but with hardware, especially when it comes to tooling and, and all that. So if we, if we resume the story of producing and, and manufacturing hardware, so you said you were a little slower than you had wished off the marks and yep. you were probably on Kickstarter a little bit too early. Yeah. From start to finish to the moment you shipped the product, how long was that? So my university project in 2011, we did Kickstarter end of 2012. We didn't start shipping product till the very beginning of 2014, I don't think. Wow. Yeah, we were 18 months on Kickstarter the first time around. Wow. There was a point in that where we actually, we went back to the, our backers and we asked them. Because basically we had access to a, the laser technology was very expensive back in the day. It was a laser diode that when I first heard about it, was about $50 per diode. And we were originally using just a normal kind of laser pointer, um, DPSS laser, which is sensitive to drop temperature and vibration, which is not great for a bike light. And then halfway through the campaign, we had access to a much better technology. But integrating it would mean really changing the product and potentially delaying it by many, many months. So we went to the, to the backers and said, guys, look, this is the situation, full, full of all the information. You've got an option. Either choose option A, you get the product sooner rather than later. Not as It's not going to be as fully resolved and as happy as the final mass production. These are the reasons why. Or you wait. We're going to be doing X, Y, Z, but you're going to be waiting for months. Up to you. Totally what you want, A or B. And I remember saying to it, this is myself and I'm intern at the time, and turned to Will at the end of the day. I was like, Will, has anybody, has anybody voted? So yeah, we've had 598 Responses, like, what do they, they say? 592 say, let's wait. <laughs> okay, cool, cool, that's the decision made. And I think because they were involved and they really were a part of it and they got these ridiculously long, waffly updates from me every day, not every day, but frequently, they were, they were amazing, actually. They were really patient and kind of came along for the journey. That's good. So, I mean, I, th- I guess it sounds like one recommendation you'd make is engage your community yeah, often totally. and early. Um, and again, that comes with a lot of work. It's a lot of work because the more information you give, it comes with the more questions. You know, backers aren't stupid. They want to they know what's going on. Things go wrong and they want to be involved in that and see that and understand that. And yeah, you, you can't um, you can kill all the information. Kill yeah. all the kindness. All right. So there you go, guys. First lesson, engage your, your potential customers or community often and early yeah. so that you can at least have some some tolerance towards delays and yeah. mistakes. All right. So on that process to getting the product done, clearly one of them was decisions about which components to use. But if we, if we dig into the actual manufacturing, whether it be through relationship with the manufacturing partner, location of manufacturing, packaging issues, delays, mm-hmm. like if you get to highlight the top three things and now you can't use delays of components anymore. Yeah. So now you have, you have to pick okay. 
three new ones. Yeah. It's like if you had to pick the top three things that gave you headaches prior to shipping product. Yeah. That you wish like if you had known sort of Emily of today giving Emily of back then advice, what would they be? I mean, manufacturing is hard. Things go wrong that you just can't foresee go wrong. I mean, you have the laser light, for example, our first product has 132 components in it. And they've each got the production schedule on that. Each different part has different, you know, if it's being made in the casing, for example, of the first product was a 14 step process. Um, so we thought originally that we were going to be deep drawing the cases like you make a cigar case. So you have a bit of molten aluminium and you press it into a press and you can draw it out into a kind of um, cigar shape. We kind of went down that path and realised quite early on that actually that wasn't possible, but the rest of the product had been designed around that shape. So we had to make that shape some other way. And that involved a 14-step process, which was kind of basically CNCing, machine post-production, diamond cut edges, sandblasting, anodizing, like a whole big production. And that was done in, I think, three different factories. So that's one of the 132 components. And then one of those factories has a shutdown. And one of those factories has a delay on materials. You have this unbelievable flow of waterfall of effects of, of things and objects and, and things going into, into production. And I think we just needed more experience of going through that once before. <laughs> We'd never gone through it once before. We ended up hiring somebody from the production company that we worked with in the first place. And he was our guy on the ground in China. So that was so my first lesson would actually be go out there. I mean, China is often where it needs to be, um, but there's many other places opening up now for production. But you cannot underestimate the value of actually being on the factory floor and speaking to your team out there and seeing things done and conversations through language barriers and distance barriers, all those kind of things. Always can things get lost in translation. Sat around a table in China for a day is, you know, cuts down a workload of a month. And then the second one was having that person, having that person on the ground out there. If we couldn't be there physically, then having somebody else that was. And the third one is the obvious one, just whatever you think it's going to cost, however long you think it's going to take, double it, quadruple it. These things come up. You can't Is it double or quadruple? Because that's like, that's a big meaningful increase. Well, cost double and timeline quadruple. Okay. I don't know if that's Um, helpful. For a first time hard entrepreneur with all the optimism in the world, like that needs to be tempered a little bit because it's, it's really, it's complicated. It's hard. Wow. Well, moving away a little bit from the hardware itself and now into sort of that early days of post-shipping to getting revenue sales up, you know, basically the process of building a brand. Mm-hmm. What were the biggest challenges that you had in terms of getting the name out there for Blaze in light of, you know, Nog, is it, the, the com- yeah. that makes yeah. the lights? And, you know, there's a lot of other companies out there naturally, but I think Nog, the reason why I highlighted them is because they had this... Uh, branding around being different and unique yeah. and, and sort of Super cool branding. it stood out in terms of like if you went to Evan Cycles as like the one that was different than the rest versus yeah. the commoditized products how did you think about now entirely talking from a marketing point of view and from a cost of acquisition point of view and from like a using you know advertising channels to stand out on effectively what is in a competitive hardware point of view a very commoditized market the, the bike light market yeah so we found it hard, if I'm honest. Um, and it was, it took us a long time to kind of wake up and realize that the first product was not the product to scale with. It required a lot of education. The laser light is, it's a radical innovation that's never been seen before. And you can't stick it on a shelf and expect it to sell itself. Ideally, if you have a video, you see it in real life. If I explain it to somebody verbally, it's a front light that also has a green laser that projects the symbol of a bike in front of you on the road. People normally kind of nod and look a bit confused and sometimes get that, sometimes don't. We show a picture, they go, oh, cool. Yeah, okay, I see. Yeah, that's cool. You see a video, like, oh, wow, got it. Awesome. 
you can't do that in a shop. It's easier online. We tried to do it in a physical space for a long time and realized that actually we needed the assets and the, the kind of marketing materials to go with it. And even online, the kind of acquisition for the product, that was an expensive product. That laser diode that I first mentioned decreased from $50, but it was still a very expensive component, which made the light a very expensive light. And it was a challenge, you know, it was a real challenge. We didn't have the margins to play with when it comes to kind of lots of acquisition channels. Also had to have the education. It took, it was a tough pill to swallow, but it took, it took a couple of years to chew it down to realize that that wasn't the product that we were going to build a massive business on. And then as we've added new consumer products, so this year we've had for the first time last season at the Pixel, which is a really lovely little 19 pound light that can be either a front light or a back light. It's fully waterproof. Um, it's a really like lovely little pebble shaped product, but it's also at a price point that's much more accessible and we can open up other channels and play with it much more. But it was, it was difficult. It was difficult. And how did you solve it? Was it just product diversification or was it? Designing new products. So we have a new laser light, which is called the Laser Light Core, mm. which is now at £69 rather than £125, which obviously makes a huge difference. Mm. Um, supplementing with other products. So the Burner is the backlight. The Burner Brake is the new Burner backlight, the Pixel. But then also, in the meanwhile, we were, we were going all the directions. Meanwhile, we were integrating our technology into fleets of bikes. So we started working with Santander Cycles. Mm. Um, all right. So that's the, that's the next, <laughs> next part of the story that I wanted to get to. But before we get into that, because that, I think that's such a critical part of the story. So before that, I just wanted to sort of maybe cap the whole conversation about getting your product into stores, but not necessarily having the use case fully um, explained to, to the customers naturally. I think if you look, if you look at like GoPro, for example, mm-hmm. one of the key things that they have on their POS. sales, their, their POS um, um, is the video of people yeah. using it. And you're yeah. like, Oh wow. And you know, I don't know if that's how they negotiated that. Uh, I don't know if they just bankrolled that and, and that was that. But now yeah. it's like a thing, right? GoPro yeah. comes with a little video uh, unit, a POS that showcases the use. Yeah. What other ideas did you think about other than just making more products to really showcase this? Because basically there's probably founders listening to this that are thinking, my product's so revolutionary that similar to, yeah. to Emily, it comes the challenge. I need to figure out a way of explaining this and I don't have the luxury of a, a, a GoPro type POS. So. Yeah. I mean, it's a really hard problem to, to try and solve. When we went down that route, we tried to have a POS, we tried to have a video, and in a couple of stores we did. I mean, you know, the most valuable thing was actually having people in store demoing it. You know, if you can get managed to do that, it sounds daft, but I remember being out, we were stopped in the MoMA design store in New York for a, a year or two, which is amazing. And a week of me standing in the MoMA design store with the product, flashing it around the store, we saw more lights than... We did in all of the Evan stores in the UK that week. It's, you know, someone's seeing it in real, real life, but then how do you scale that? It's, it's, and, and that's the problem we, we haven't really, we didn't. So when, to, to pick on that example, did you, did you make a condition for stocking it that it, you would have a chance to train employees on its yeah. use? Or, okay. Yeah. And they were doing a, a fantastic kind of showcase of startup, actually kind of Kickstarter products. Um, but they yeah, invited me out there to go actually be in store, which I jumped at and it was really useful. In terms of getting things stocked, how how did you find that journey? Was it like just cold calling or you called some friends or how did you get it stocked in, you know, effectively the major retail points for this kind of product? So they, they want innovative products. They want the terms of negotiations obviously tricky because you're dealing with companies that have got margins to scale and, and terms well negotiated. But ultimately, these, these stores want something exciting and new and are receptive to hearing from you. Mm. Um, and it was, I think it was, 
pretty much just kind of cold outreach as much as possible. And relationships, you know, we've been speaking to Circle Surgery, we've been speaking to Evans for a while and they've been seeing early prototypes. And then when they, they saw the Kickstarter and knew it was all coming. Um, and then we're excited to stock it once it finally arrived and then building on those. But the bike industry is tricky because it has, there's 2000 independent bike stores in the UK and Evans only has a kind of far fewer, I mean, 50 stores or something that you, far fewer than you'd think. So it is, store by store by store by store by store if you want to do it that way or a distributor which takes a large margin so yeah we haven't got the big and then, and then there's the online game which is comes with its own challenges mm. now a lot of people have heard of the premise that you might forego your traditional margins or your traditional ideal business agreement with a first customer mm-hmm. did you have to do that at all for whoever stocked the product first, did you, you know, what mistakes did you make in terms of building those early commercial relationships that, you know, without necessarily, you don't have to say who yeah. that you gave a better deal to, but how did you manage that? Or or did you get lucky and just because of the nature of it and the novelty of it, you didn't have to compromise by giving, you know, a lost leader product or some sort of other commercial agreement that wasn't to your advantage, but it was what was necessary to get into those shelves. So I think commercially on the, on the shelves, we didn't actually have to kind of, certainly didn't lose money or, or sacrifice too much. We were making, we were making profit on, on the product. Um, but our example of that was Kickstarter. You know, Kickstarter cost us, we, the first time, the first time we did it, the product was up there for 60 pounds and it ended up being 125 pound retail product. That was a journey to get those products to those people cost us a lot of money. Those were our early adopters. Those were our, mm. those were our lost leaders. Those guys were our, became our evangelists. They had it on their bikes. Mm. Anyway, we wanted to get as many lasers on bikes as possible so people see it on the street mm. and stop you at lights and say, hey, dude, what, what's that? Where do you get that from? Mm. One of the things that you just said was it took us a lot of money to, to sell that. So let's talk about money before we revisit the, the, the journey of Barrel within the Santander, you know, what, what happened there. First of all, your fundraising journey, I actually don't have the full picture of it, but I presume it's got a combination of angels and, and VCs. Walk us through the early challenges you had in pitching effectively a hardware company mm-hmm. with a lag in monetization and then the the challenges of, of a business with hardware where you need the money to finance some of the manufacturing and the lead times and the inventory and the working capital and, and maybe things that you would do differently if you had to fundraise all over again. So yeah, we obviously got pushed back in the early days for hardware. I mean, investors are scared of hardware and there were even more so back then. There weren't that many startups really kind of pushing it and going for going for big when it came to hardware. I raised a very small friends and family round. I remember there's a family friend who, who's based in the city down the road and I go for coffee with him and, and ask and pick his brains about advice. And after a while, he kept kind of saying, well, why don't you take some money? Why don't you take some investment? I was like, oh, no, I don't, don't want some money. He's like, no, go on, why don't you take some money? And by this point, I then hired Will, my first employee, who was then an intern, and started to realize I probably should pay him something. I need to find some cash for that. And this family friend was like, look, if I write you a check for 10K at a valuation of a million, you take it. And this is like well early before we had a prototype. I was like, yes, definitely. And that kind of triggered a few more angels and that set the price, which is great. And that got the ball rolling. And then took some um, institutional money from, from Index um, and the Branson family, and that was when Index hadn't started Local Globe yet. So it was when Saul was did he did this a spate of about four hardware investments at the same time ourselves, Roly, Kano, Kano, and a couple of others. Um, and that was kind of they've been taking a punt on hardware, which is quite exciting because then they spun out Local Globe and went, went in that direction. 
but it was, I think the most valuable thing when it comes to financing was actually the terms we got with our manufacturing partner. So we worked with PCH International really early on when they first started working with startups. And it was a real learning curve on both sides, if I'm honest. But one thing we did get from it, which is amazing, was payment terms. We got really favorable to payment terms on the product. Um, we were paid after finished product arrived in the UK, which is completely game-changing and changed the entire business. So we didn't have to fund this great big gap of working capital that we otherwise would have had to. And looking back on it, I hadn't realised what a huge win that was at the time, but it wouldn't have been possible to do it without it. Mm. So I'd, I'd probably say that. I spend just as much time focusing on your terms with your manufacturing partner than you do fundraising. Hmm. Good advice. All right, so let's go to one of the things that I think put your name on the map, which was getting on basically one of the largest bike sharing schemes in the world, which is the Santander. Were you were you in when it was still a Barclay Bikes or, or was they it? just changed. Just changed from Barclay to Santander from blue to red. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. So walk us through that journey from the point of view of a founder who wants to engage with a government initiative or something like that, because clearly, you know, yours is a unique situation with a bike scheme, but yeah. walk us through the whole process of of migrating from a, a sort of B2C Kickstarter customer to a retail customer to now a government customer. Yeah. So it was a wild one. It was like a, it was a dream. It was like a pipe dream, like a kind of pie in the sky dream of, you know, friends saying, yeah, I was thinking about you. Do you should do? You should, um, you should get your laser on the, on the bars bikes. Oh, no shit. Thanks. Would love to. Tell me how. Where's that friend's accent from? <laughs> I don't know who that was actually. <laughs> but... We, so I mean, I think we spoke to TFL actually really early on and they basically said, look, you're too early. Go away and prove yourselves, which is quite right. And then Serco. So the whole thing comes about the three players in this. There's Serco who have a contract to operate the bikes from TFL, um, who are a 70,000 person business and have government contracts across the board. TFL who obviously own the scheme and then Santander who are the sponsors. And all three of them had very different reasons why they wanted this to happen. And it was really important for us to understand from each of them, what those reasons were and talk to those reasons. And also, obviously, who the champion is internally for each of those those reasons. But Serco basically wanted to be, their contract was up for negotiation. They wanted to add value to the scheme. And they knew that safety was the number one reason people weren't getting on the bikes. And the, these, this laser light was a radical innovation that could be could help that and get more people on them. So they approached us um, and we went for a meeting and we were... It was a, from then about an 18-month process of trying to get TFL comfortable with it because we were unproven. We'd had a few consumer products out in the wild by that point, but we otherwise, we certainly haven't built anything for government before. Um, so they quite rightly wanted to do a testing process and commissioned the Transport Research Laboratory to do a 12-week bit of study onto the innovation. And they tested a bike with and without a laser light in different light conditions and different road surfaces around buses, vans, cars, HGVs, the works, and a whole piece of, piece of work, which we're really grateful for because like, it's quite hard to prove. We knew anecdotally a bike is more visible with a laser light than without. We knew anecdotally cycling around town and someone saw you before they would otherwise. We have customers who write in and tell us that. But to prove it with data, which is what obviously a government body needs, was very difficult. Like, what do you do? Take a sample size A, how many people get squished? Sample size B, how many people don't? Like, you can't. It's tricky to do. But these guys are the experts and they, they knew what they're doing. They tested it. And it was a very nerve-wracking 12 weeks because we obviously weren't allowed to be involved at all. By the end of it, they submitted a 92-page document to government which basically said it's golden. And they had data in there that said it decreased the blind spot of a van by over 25%, a bus by nearly 30. 78% of London bus drivers surveyed said it would help them spot a cyclist 
all of this hard data, which is basically what TFL needed to take it over the line. Mm. And we also, meanwhile, ran a, after that, ran a trial of 250 bikes for about six months. So that was more testing the ruggedness of the technology and testing it that would hold up um, against, you know, London weather, London cyclists bashing those bikes into the docks, um, bashing the bikes around and, and all that. And thankfully, the technology held up. But that was working with Serco and TFL to prove that. And then meanwhile, in the background... The reason TFL wanted it, they wanted to increase the ridership. They wanted to get more people on the bikes and use safety was another reason, one reason why not to. Circo wants it because they wanted to be proved to be innovative and adding value to the scheme. Santander wanted it because the bikes had just turned from red to blue and nobody really had, well, they had, but it wasn't making a huge splash and they wanted to be seen to be really innovative and exciting. And weirdly, Santander, to go back a bunch of steps, were the guys that sent me to Babson. Mm. So they sent me and funded my entrepreneurial scholarship out to Babson. So I kind of sort of became the kind of poster child of Santander <laughs> because nice. they kind of, you know, we created Emily and this innovation and now her breakthrough moment is putting this laser on all of the bikes in London. Um, so that was a really nice kind of like closing the loop with, with them. But we you know we had champions internally from them to make this happen. And then, and then, then that happened. So we had to make mm. 13,000 of them and put them in the bikes. And, you know, quite quickly that crazy moment of having a tough day in the office and, and going to get home at night and getting on a Santander cycle that has a laser in it and seeing Fort Moore go past on your 10-minute bike home. Was that moment when you're like, you're proud of yourself, right? You're it's, just like, wow, I, that's that's me right there. That, it's that, more crazy. It's like, this is, they let us do this. That's <laughs> They're awesome. All over the place. And what was the biggest organizational impact of that? So 13,000, obviously, that's a sales unlock, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of value. It probably opened up doors with other municipalities. Mm-hmm. It probably, you know, there's a probably cascade effect of that success. But from an organizational point of view, how many people were you when that, when that launched? Like tiny, I want to say 12. 12. And then by the time you rolled out all of that, were you still 12 or do you think you had hired more to deliver that? We'd hired, we hadn't actually, no, for, for that particular contract that didn't, we didn't require us hiring specifically for mm-hmm. it. We knew we'd outsourced some of the manufacturing, we'd mm-hmm. outsourced the areas where kind of the, the increase in production needed, needed people. Um, so no, it was more just the headspace of actually kind of making sure that this product was, was working and was going to be good enough and was on time. And obviously we have, you know, pretty tight requirements from working with an organization such as, such as those. So if, if the organization itself as, as a size didn't change that much, what was the organizational impact of having effectively a far more, um, rigorous imposition on you yeah. of delivering quality reliability on time? Cause I mean, one thing is to, offer a consumer product on retail shelves that if it breaks, you can send a replacement yeah. and, and, you know, yes, you hope that it never fails, but if it does, you can apologize and yeah. you know send two free or something like that. But when it's like now a government contract is part of a scheme and it's very hard to swap them out and all yeah. that stuff, what culture shift or what sort of organizational shifts needed to occur for you to really sort of level up post that? It was understanding how they work and trying to, trying to play their game. I mean, because we, we're a tiny, innovative, fast moving, slightly chaotic startup. Circo 70,000 people with more process and systems in it than you can possibly imagine. I never had a job before that I understood what this vocabulary was. It was a whole, Phil, my co-founder, thankfully had had a corporate job and had been a consultant for a few years. Mm. So he spoke the language far better than I did, but we needed that because you know, we had, a, we had a serious issue early on. We had some of the lasers stop working. And I mean, a lot of them. And it was, wasn't showing up in the trial. Basically, it was a static issue. The static was, um, faulting the lasers, um, out in the field. Turned out to be a combination of 
basically how they were fitted in the workshop. And the first 250 50 were fitted very carefully because it was a trial. And the next one, you get to the kind of doing 13,000 of them, they're being whizzed through very, very quickly in normal production, normal kind of maintenance of the bikes. And if they didn't have the proper static guard, they were being statically damaged. But it took us a long time and it needed us to work with Serco really closely to unpick that problem for them to collaborate with us, which was a really steep learning curve because... They didn't speak our language. We barely spoke theirs. And we needed both parts to kind of really play together to get to the bottom of that problem. Mm. So with with the sale to Santander of having 13,000 bikes, you know, that's super impressive on the one hand. But on the flip side, it must have been super scary and maybe potentially even seen as a distraction organizationally for you from like the pre-existing B2C uh, sales that you were you were generating. How was your organization impacted and how did you have to plan to deliver that kind of size contract? And did you have a moment where you're thinking, should we be doing this? Because it might distract us from like our traditional manufacturing processes and our scales and focus the organization on chunky contracts versus delivering innovation very quickly on our B2C products. Yeah, it was, um, to be honest, the heat of it actually came, landed in China. So whether we're making a few thousand products or we're making 13,000 products, it really, the difference came in that end rather than our end. Um, what I would have wished to be done this time, the first time around, would have been to scale production when we did have that large, chunky first big order um, much more slowly. So do kind of a few hundred, a few hundred, a few hundred, and then start clumping to the thousands. Because if something goes wrong or something's not quite right and you're churning them out, you know, a thousand a day or whatever it is, you don't realize that till too late. Um, by the time they arrive in the UK and you're testing them, those products, you know, you'll then have 13,000 with that fault, for example. Um, and if you haven't got a team, we're not all there on the factory line in China at the time. Make sure that those first first few... And it's, the challenge on that is always you're pushing up against it on timelines and they want that first batch ASAP. But try and have it as small as possible to begin with and test those ones in and out, in and out, in and out until you can actually really push the go, go live button and make some big numbers. Mm. So maybe parting thoughts for any founder wanting to work with any government initiatives. Understand what the internal criteria are. What, 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 what's you know the, the person you're speaking to on a daily basis? What's he not necessarily being judged on, but what's the agenda internally? What's their um, you know they have so many you know complicated processes internally, which which tick various boxes that this needs to adhere to, um, and it's understanding what those are and singing to their hymn sheet on them. Mm. Cool. Well, one of the things that I find quite fascinating about the story of Beryl is it showcases somebody, a founder who thinks very big, right? Like you shared with us the very beginning of the story, which was, I want to solve this problem of people um, cycling and, and, and being unsafe uh, is one of the reasons that prevents them from doing that. And, and our cities and our ecologies affected by not having more people on sustainable transport. And what might have started off as a as a humble project uh, in university with with lasers has now become a bike sharing scheme, mm-hmm. you know, in the grand scheme. And we were talking earlier about how you were thinking about designing a bike. Well, now you have a bike, right? And and I guess I just want to understand how how you wake up in the morning and how you in your free time or at night or during dinner think and unlock your mind into not setting limits on what ceiling a company can be, even if it starts as humbly as a bike light mm-hmm. to now what it is today. How, how do you, how do you imagine things such that they be, they manifest themselves with such 
uh, quantum leaps uh, or of organizational change? How would you recommend a founder to not limit themselves to like maybe their initial product to the, their grand vision? So that I credit um, my relationship with my co-founder, Phil. So the two of us, I mean, he often comes to me with completely crazy ideas and we chat them through the two of us and um, like between us dream big. And it's been crazy, crazy ideas that we looked at at the time and thought, dude, really, can we do this? But I think having the two of us in that conversation together, backing each other to say, yeah, we can. Um, I've been very lucky with him. I've been very lucky. I hired him after about 18 months of the business. Um, and he's my thought partner and never think, and he's owns a lot of the vision. But if it just, just been me, I think that's a different, different situation to have those kind of really be ballsy to go, right, we're going to shoot for the, for the stars now. We're going to go make our own bag share. Why not? Mm. All right. So you credit, you credit having a, a strong, maybe not co-founder, but somebody who's a good sparring partner within the organization to sort of manifest those ideas. And how do you, des- how do you design an organization that enables both people to feel empowered? How, how did you think about creating a culture within Barrel where, um, nobody feels like the, that you're just the last straw and, the, mm-hmm. and, the, and maybe I'm assuming things here. Maybe you are the last <laughs> straw, but, but how, how did you create an environment where there can be that sparring partner? And did you, did you promote that within the organization across all levels below you? Yeah, it's a very open, a very open, very flat organization. There's no kind of ideas come from anywhere and everywhere. Um, the, the, going back to the purpose is is the most important thing. I think as long as it aligns to the purpose. I mean, there's things that we've had ideas that it's very tempting to have these temp, like opportunities to go to go run after. But if they're not aligned to the purpose, then it's hands off. We're not doing it. Um, but yeah, ideas come from everywhere within the organization. And having, again, having a purpose-driven business where people really care about making that difference, then they come to you with those differences, some of those ideas. So I mean, we've been focusing a lot on your success to date. Now, we still haven't gone to the whole bike share bit mm-hmm. in full detail. But let's just stop for a second. And, and in every journey, there's low lights. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, you mentioned a little bit about sort of the delays and the product and the Kickstarter days. And, you know, you talked a little bit about the challenges on the quality control for the Santander bikes. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of lowest of the lows, I think part of the entrepreneurial challenge that sometimes is hidden from the media mm-hmm. is struggles, yeah. uh, it, it, whether it be with co-founders or whether it be with, you know, customers or whether it just be with financing or family, maybe there's something you're willing to share that might prove as an inspiration for somebody going through that process. So for me, if I think about low lights, I mean, the first and immediate thing that comes to mind is, is people, people upsets, people. I mean, I really, really care about the team so much. And when time, I mean, especially in the early days where you really are a family and you on this journey together, I think the mistake I made early on was, um, in hindsight, I would change this, where when you are so small and you're a handful of people that can sit around a table and share the vision, share the dream, then... Everyone's a generalist. Everybody gets on with everything. Everyone's touching every part of the business and whatever needs to get done that day, somebody puts on their to-do list and it gets done. Um, and you share it all and you're all, you're all in it together. But then as the company grows, you, you no longer need generalists. You need, everyone has to pick a, pick an area to, to swim in, a lane to swim in. Whether it's, you know, we have our own HR function or operations or finance or whatever. You, you hire for those specialities. And I wish I'd said to those early people, to focus on that, to think of what they individ- as individuals wanted to, to specialize in, what they needed to get training in perhaps, or what they, because the early team often kind of came straight from university or from, from very little experience. 
Um, and we're arguably in a really amazing opportunity and position where they can touch every element of the business, but then use that and kind of focus, right, okay, it's HR that I'm really passionate about and I want to kind of focus in this, in this direction. Because then there came a, a period which was completely natural and we sort of had, for a long time had the opposite challenge of every startup in East London where nobody left then Blaze. We, we had everybody stuck around for about four years before anybody really left, which was amazing. But then there came a point where actually we were and needed to hire specialists and, and it wasn't the right shape of person to, to stick, to stay there in that, in that role. And it all, it was all, you know, really well done by the individuals and kind of very emotional conversations where normally they came to a conclusion that they needed to go on and find something else. But those hit me really hard, really, really hard in the early days and kind of required to kind of take a, take a 15 minute walk around the block and block my eyes out and wipe my face and come back in the office and pretend I was okay. But yeah, I think pe- people stuff is, is always really upset me. Yeah. It's the most gutting, isn't it? Um, so let's, let's go down to present day bike sharing. So massive, massive, massive uh, ambition there, right? Mm-hmm. In light of a couple of things, one of them, there's a slew and maybe the UK is a little different because we don't have e-scooters yet, but there's a massive influx of, hyper-local transport options for last mile, right? Mm-hmm. And that includes electric scooters, uh, you know, bike-sharing schemes that are government-led and, and private ones. So why bike-sharing and, and why now? That's the first question. And the second question is, as an extension of what Barrel started, what makes the Barrel bike-sharing scheme so different from all the other ones? Okay, so the bike hasn't changed in, in hundreds of years and is arguably the most efficient, best, greenest, most environmentally friendly, most enjoyable way to get yourself across the city. The world will be electric and it'll be electric very, very soon. For a whole entire fleet of electric bikes, the cost of that is quite high today. The operational cost of driving around, replacing batteries, um, those bikes need to be touched often two to three times a week. And the vehicles themselves are very expensive. It makes the whole thing expensive, both for operationally for the provider and then also for the end user. Whereas a good old-fashioned bike can get you from A to B perfectly happily and arguably more sustainably and more healthily um, than than an electric bike. Once we have on-street charging infrastructure, which will come, then I think electric bikes become much more effective. But when we will be doing an electric bike, we've got an electric bike, our first prototypes are arriving, I think next week actually. And they will be very valuable for the longer distances, trunking routes in and out of cities, for example. But the good old-fashioned bike can still get you across pretty much, especially European cities where... Streets are wiggly and, and, and potholed and scooters are something I can go, I can have a long conversation about. Electric scooters, there's three challenges I find with electric scooters. Number one, the safety. The data hasn't really represented yet the true, and it's beginning to, the true danger of those, of those vehicles. You've seen it in California a bit, but things are reported as road traffic accidents, not necessarily a scooter accident. And we haven't seen the data yet, but it is starting to come out. But the height of the wheelbase, you hit a pothole, you know, bicycles have been on the roads for hundreds of years and drivers are only just learning to look for a cyclist. Somebody standing vertical, like a lamppost and gliding through traffic is very hard to miss, very easy to miss. So the danger and safety is, is, is one, one worry I personally have. Second of all, arguably they're not distances that would uh, sort of replacing kind of or creating modal shift or getting something out of a car or out of a bus or out of public transport is a distance that often should be walked. You know, it's, it's quite fun and novel to jump on a, an electric scooter, but you wouldn't necessarily go across an entire city on one. It's a few blocks here and there. Um, and a lot of those journeys actually are taking away from, from walking, which I personally have, have a challenge with. And finally, you know, the, 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 the durability of those devices, um, they are getting slightly better, but they last weeks, some of them 11 days one provider was found out to be, 
on street before they become landfill, which isn't aligned to sustainability goals and, and modal shift and, and all that. Um, so the bike, you know, everyone's getting excited by the other forms of, of, um, of mobility, but the bike can get you a long way and can serve, serve and answer that need and challenge that cities have when it comes to moving populations. In terms of us and why we're doing it differently, we've been building this for about two or two, over two years now. We've been building this since before OFO Mobike even came to the UK. We saw there was two ends of the spectrum. There was this fixed infrastructure, which was incredibly expensive. So in the Santander cycles in London, City Bikes in New York that we worked with, the, the cost of the actual docking stations, digging up the road for electricity. Then once it's operation, it's balancing the bikes, doing which dock is full, which dock is empty. Very expensive and very difficult to scale out of the central, central London, central city. Or you had this kind of scale fast, leave anywhere Asian model that was dumping back then very, very cheap vehicles all over the streets and seeing what happens. And we had a vision for something in the middle that was going to be done better and be done differently. And our model is fundamentally different because A1 is a, it's a really good quality bike. I've got one outside. I just, I'd love you to take it for a spin if you want to do it, if you want nice. to do it afterwards. But it's a really lovely, I'm obviously biased, but it is a lovely bike. It's a really good bike to ride. It's 20% lighter than a Santander cycle. It's only 20 kilos, so I can carry up a set of stairs if I needed to. It's really, really nimble. It's got 24 inch wheels. It's much more adjustable, um, for heights. So it's for somebody's four foot 11 up to six foot five. And it's, a, it's designed to be to last on street for many years. So we hired the managing director for the London Bike Share Scheme and all the operational experience that he came with um, on how to keep a bike on the street and make that asset sweat and work for you and actually be rideable. Um, so that is a, you know the main on the street differentiator is it's a really good quality vehicle. And then another big differentiator is our bays. So we have barrel bays. So these vehicles will be parked in geofenced locations. So like. A car parking space can be enough parking for 10 bikes. We're operating in the city of Bournemouth right now. We'll be one exclusive contract for five years. And in Bournemouth today, you'll go down, you'll find just over 200 barrel bays, which is on street, just green paint on the road. Um, and the, the bikes are left in, in the bay. You can see in the app where they are geofenced and where they're located. But cities love it because the bikes aren't left and strewn all over the streets. Users like it because they know where they can find a bike. They can walk into the street and there's going to be a bay and there's going to be six bikes there. Um, and operationally, we like it because we know where the bikes are. And when it comes to servicing and rebalancing and redistribution, it makes it much more cost effective. Yeah, really a hybrid approach. Exactly a hybrid approach. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and it's, it's really interesting. And, and I think, you know, there's a, there's probably a lot we can discuss around bike sharing and stuff and how you got to finance and all that. And, and I, you know, I appreciate that, you know, there's probably a whole podcast just on how to launch <laughs> a, a distributed you know, transport system. But... Back to the whole thing about thinking big, you know, if we start off with the premise that the light was a way of preventing others from um, squashing, what was it? Yeah, you said squishy. squishing. Um, it doesn't necessarily seem like the most obvious point, which is to create your own bike sharing scheme. It's ambitious as all can be, yeah. but it doesn't, I mean, it could have easily have become providing the Van Moose of the world with uh, established brands and cycles to embed uh, the barrel products the way that Santander did. So migrating away from, you know, a government-led entity to migrating to every single, like, giant and specialized yeah. and all of them, you know, having just like, you know, most and bikes. We looked at that. What's sure. up? We looked at that for sure. You did. So how did you make that strategic decision of, like, I'm going to now shift my resources to manufacturing and uh, a, a network versus from a product? Because that, that must have been a very difficult decision. Yeah. 
And it, it, it does from outside look, I'm sure, completely bonkers. But there was a critical step in the middle, which made this kind of like an obvious, not an obvious, but made it kind of a stepping stone to this. And that was co-designing the new Santander cycle. So after putting our lasers in the, f- the fleet of 1,300, 13,000, sorry, the first time around, we then got the contract to co-design the new Santander cycle for London with Pashley, who are a British bike manufacturer. We did the lights, laser, GPS, Bluetooth, sensors, all the technology on board the bike. And that, we, you know, the bike was going to be out there for the next seven years. So we proposing an awful lot more technology to go on board that bike, which is going to make the operators and the owners of the, of the fleet, um, their lives much easier. But in doing so, we kind of learnt, A, a lot more about how to run a bike share scheme, because I still think the Santander Cycles is one of the best run bike share schemes in the world, because the KPIs that TFL put on Serco were very strict. But also, we kind of, we, we designed a lot of that bike, and it sounds crazy, but Turns out building your own bike is arguably easier than making a bike light. A bike light, you start with a white piece of paper. Like, where do you start? I mean, what shape is it going to be? How many LEDs is it going to be? What's the color is it going to be? Like, everything. Everything's up for grabs. Whereas a bike, it's been pretty much the same kind of shape for the last few hundred years. You've got two wheels, you've got a handlebar stem, blah, blah, blah. Um, so a lot of it was a sourcing challenge. Um, we, we designed our own frame, we designed our own basket, we designed a lot of the bike. But it was it wasn't as hairily terrifying as it was when we first came up with the idea, it turned out. And to be honest, the other step in the middle was we were working with Circo and TFL to design that bike, the new bike. And there was a moment where we were actually going to go and do this with Circo as a joint venture. So we realized that we weren't operators of a service. We'd never run a service in our lives. We didn't know how to, we'd learned a lot. We didn't, we weren't then equipped to run and operate a bike share scheme. Circo were, that's their bread and butter. So there was going to be a world where they were going to have the contract or work with us to operate the schemes and we were going to develop the technology, the bike, and do that side of things. But then it kind of, A and one, like they are a 70,000 person company trying to work with a tiny startup, comes with its own challenges. And we kind of figured we could do it ourselves and we could do it just as well, if not better. And we had a quite innovative approach to it that was a more light touch operating model that was powered by technology. And that's what we focused on building. So there must have been some point in the company's history where you were like, all right, guys, we're doing it. It felt like a, like a gradual, the gradual, gradual, like, yeah, a oh. gradual, like, bit by bit. We just kind of started biting off more of the, the value chain, you know, mm. more of, first of all, the, the light, then it's the technology, then it's the back end software, then it's like, okay, we're now doing a bike. Hmm. Deciding to do a bike was probably the big, the big decision. Hmm. Okay, well, you know, maybe to, to, to put a, a cap on the, the barrel story for now, what would you say your parting advice for a founder kind of going through the key elements of building a company to where you are today? If you were on the board, their board, yeah. what would be the things like maybe just to give you some ideas around HR, around partners, around uh, go to market? What would be like the three things that you would highlight as like, you know, you would give advice to Emily day one? in yeah. building the company so I, th- I think one thing we, we have done well is, is and I keep going back to it is that purpose and having that clearly defined from day one it kind of accidentally happened and we kept kind of articulating it but realising actually we were still articulating the same thing and that carried it through that's carried us through an awful lot um, mm. and made decisions easier at times where we are tempted to go off and run in a different direction to bring us back to that and like right is this, is this aligned to what we've set out to do on day mm. one in terms of other things I mean, that point about certainly you know, advising early, early team members to kind of focus on areas of speciality to, to get training in or something they want to kind of grow into. And remember, and it sounds, yeah, remember to have fun. You know, 
it's it's this whole it's a real cliche but it's, you're not running it to the finish point you're it, this is the journey this is we're doing this because we really enjoy it and we come in the office and we don't take ourselves too seriously and you know we're a scruffy bunch that has a hell of a lot of fun building what we're building and occasionally we do take stock and there's moments like these talking to you and you realize yeah we've been ballsy as hell at times and kind of shot for the stars but actually we've got a team that really enjoy doing that um and to kind of celebrate the wins and to support each other and, and enjoy it cool well as i mentioned here i like to ask uh, maybe a couple of final fun questions that that might give people insight to you as a as a as a person outside of barrel if you look back in history you see a lot of things that happened that we were shocked today uh, people got away with yeah and if you look 50 years into the future mm-hmm. and you're not allowed to say, say uh car ownership okay um if you look 50 years in the future, what do you think we'll look back on in 2019 and think, how did we let that happen? Um, the city can't support cars. No. You know, if you look at, for example, the embankment, it is now has this you know, wonderful, great big cycle lane next to it. But that means that there's many, many hundreds, if not thousands of taxi drivers stuck in their one lane, miserable on a daily basis, hating and cursing cyclists. Yeah. And it's this kind of uncomfortable moment of like, well, we can't move the entire population of the city in a car. It's just not possible anymore we have to find other forms of mobility and yeah if we had that foresight 50 years ago then we know what would the ideal infrastructure look like because we're trying to kind of square peg round hole it at the moment Mm. it's very difficult to change it um but in terms of yeah in the future looking back i can't get my head away from the car and owning it and and petrol but yeah well okay so if you if you were an x-men superhero uh which superpower would you have and why I would have the superpower of being many places at one time, so splitting yourself down the middle and having a separate separate you that goes off in another direction. So, you know, like, do you ever have that moment where you just want to just hit the pause button and be like, oh, if only there was two of me right now, and one went down that path in front of me, and one went down that path, and I could see what the options were and where you'd end up in 20 years' time. Wasn't there a movie about that, Sliding Doors, wasn't it, with Gwyneth? Yes, with yeah, yeah, we're going to patch it and cut her hair off. And that was a good movie. Have more fun. <laughs> yeah. But I often find myself thinking that, you know, I... Quantum memory. Quantum Emily, yeah. yeah, you haven't you haven't got to choose one. Jumping around, <laughs> which path? Maybe the, there's a, there's a Quantum Emily somewhere who owns a uh, scooter uh, sharing scooter scheme. It's like, oh, bikes, they're all wrong. No, how did she sleep at night with the accidents? <laughs> well, maybe there's one Emily that stuck it out at Oxford and, and, and is now in a research lab doing quantum physics. Quantum physics, <laughs> exactly. Quantum computing, the future of things. Well, Emily, it was great having you. I'm going to go downstairs with you right now and check out the new barrel cool. bike. Um, any any plug uh, about uh, the company where they can get it? Uh, just download it on. Yeah, just uh, barrel barrel.cc is the website, and download the app barrel um, from the from the app store. But then also, if you're in the London, then our bikes are now in the city, in the city of London. So go go in the heart of London and go and take one for a spin. Cool. And what other cities? I know you have two others. So in Bournemouth, the whole city of Bournemouth will have a thousand bikes by the end of the summer. Cool. Hereford um, and. Just come back from America, which is an interesting conversation. For the future. All right, guys, until next time, and thanks for joining. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud, and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.